Here's a question no one's asking, but they actually probably should, Walter. What are people in Tokyo saying about everything that's happened this week? Well, you know, I'm I'm going from ministry office to ministry office mostly here. So I'm not chatting to the average person on the street. And if I tried to do that, it wouldn't be very successful because not that many people speak English. Uh, but people here are really focused on China. Uh, you know, the Japan has recently decided to double its defense budget. For the first time since World War II, it's buying weapons that have a conceivable offensive purpose, Tomahawk missiles that would be used to give it a counter-strike capacity. Uh, it's, it's listening almost every day on uh, to, to threats that are coming from the mainland. And remember, too, that Japan not only has China as a neighbor, it has North Korea and Russia. So people, the Middle East is very far away here. I think people, to the extent that they're thinking about it or thinking about it in terms of what will the impact be on the U.S., will it divert the U.S. from the Indo-Pacific? And I think there's a bit more of a sense here of, a, of the rising tide of instability around the world, that the sort of G7-type order that Japan is pretty deeply committed to is being challenged more and more. And uh, I think it adds to their sense of danger. So there's no sense of like, you know, the extent to which the Biden administration is going to support whatever Israel does in Gaza and southern Lebanon is, you know, somehow is there are implications for what it will or won't do in support of Japan? Nothing like that. I don't think I mean, I think uh, people have not been talking in that way. There might be a little bit of concern, you know, will we have enough ammunition for Taiwan if we're using it all in Ukraine and now also in the Middle East? But outside, I think, professional military circles, there are not a lot of Japanese who think that a war with China is coming tomorrow. So they see this more generically in terms of, you know, what does it tell us about the state of the world? Less about how does this impact me in my daily life? Well, I was uh, in Belgrade, Serbia on Saturday when everything happened, and you won't be surprised to learn that uh, despite it being all over Twitter and WhatsApp, it did not deter people from continuing to talk endlessly about Kosovo and about nothing else. <laughs> you know, it's uh, all politics is local, and that's true internationally as well sometimes. I shall not be moved. I shall not. I shall not be moved just like a tree planted by the water. I shall not be moved. Welcome, everybody, to a special edition of What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead. Walter's with us in Tokyo this week. I'm recently returned from Belgrade, but we'll be tabling talk about Asia and Europe until next week's episode, Walter. Today, we're going to talk about Israel, Gaza, Hamas, Iran, and the Middle East. I recommend, by the way, that our listeners check out Walter's second Global View column of the week about the war, which you can read in today's edition of the Wall Street Journal. But keep in mind, this is being recorded about 24 hours before the episode airs, and events are moving very fast, so bear that in mind. With that, let's talk about the news. 
This week's stories I'm taking from the October 11th edition of The Scroll, Tablet's Daily Afternoon Digest, written by Jacob Siegel and Park McDougald, which everyone should subscribe to for a roundup of each day's news and analysis. Our first story of the week. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced on Tuesday his plan to form a unity government with members of the opposition, including National Unity Party leader and former General Benny Gantz, who served as defense minister during the last round of fighting in Gaza in 2021. Netanyahu and Gantz and current Defense Minister Yoav Golant will lead a three-person war management cabinet with a fourth place reserved for former Prime Minister Yair Lapid, who previously conditioned his participation on the sidelining of, quote, extremists within the Netanyahu coalition. The agreement puts an end for now to the bitter political battles centered around Netanyahu's proposed reforms to the country's judiciary, which had consumed Israeli society for the better part of a year. In a speech Tuesday, Netanyahu said, quote, the most important action is to establish the unity of the nation. The division within us is over. We are all united, and when we are united, we win, close quote. So a unity government under Benjamin Netanyahu, Walter, what do you make of it? It's a good development. Israel really could not afford an extended political crisis now. This is a solution. I think Gantz and Netanyahu have worked together under wartime conditions I think it it speaks very highly of Gantz, who who is, I think, very much putting nation above uh, own personal political interest. And it uh, it's a very admirable and patriotic thing to do. How it works out for him politically, we'll see. Uh, and I think also uh, Netanyahu's agreement to put aside judicial reform uh, during the war is is it's the only rational thing to do. But of course, as we know in our own politics, just because something is rational doesn't mean that people will actually do it. So I think what we're seeing here is actually the qualities that make Israel a have made Israel a successful state are on display in this hour of national crisis. Okay, our second story. As Israel gears up for a potential ground invasion of the Gaza Strip, Observers inside and outside the country are weighing the possibility of a second front opening in the north, complicating Israeli military plans and raising the specter of Israel's first two-front war since 1973. Rockets, mortars, and guided anti-tank missiles have been launched at Israel from positions inside southern Lebanon and Syria, provoking retaliatory strikes from the IDF. And on Monday, Israeli troops clashed with fighters from Palestinian Islamic Jihad along the Lebanese border, leaving two Israelis and three Palestinians dead. Hezbollah, the Lebanese Shiite militia that fought the IDF to a standstill over 34 days in 2006, is a strategic asset of Iran, just like Hamas and the Assad regime in Syria. And according to a Wall Street Journal report on Monday, in fact, Saturday's attacks were jointly planned by Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iran. The United States and other Western governments reportedly warned Hezbollah on Wednesday not to join or further escalate the conflict. Walter, what do you make of that? Well, it's all very complicated and unhappy. I do think that if Hezbollah wanted to open a second front in the north, we wouldn't be debating whether or not it was happening. It would be obvious and evident that it was happening. I think this is more, what we've seen so far is more sort of an action that if anything would tend to fix Israeli troops and assets in the North, uh, reducing Israel's ability, some would hope, to operate in Gaza, maybe keep uh, some of the missile defenses focused North rather than South, a lot of things like that. But this, and, and just a gentle reminder that we're here. 
but it does not yet look as if all the members of the Iranian axis of evil are, you know, sort of stirring or are, are preparing to act. But I'm sure that they're all ready to go if they need to be. And that as events unfold, things could happen that could trigger a much wider conflict. Okay, our final news item. And Walter, as you know well, American universities are the best in the world, so it's no surprise to see them leading the way in the development of euphemisms to refer to the murder of Jewish civilians in Israel. After Saturday's terrorist attacks, the president of Cornell University announced that, quote, the loss of life is always tragic, whether caused by human actions such as terrorism, war, or mass shootings, or by natural disasters such as earthquakes, fires, or floods, close quote. The dean of Columbia Law School, meanwhile, was forced into damage control mode after issuing a statement over the weekend lamenting the, quote, violence that erupted in Israel. So these university bureaucrats seem to be caught in their own two-front war, Walter, between Jewish students and employees who just watched a terror group live stream the murder of other Jews and progressive student groups, quote, honoring the martyrs of Hamas and calling for resistance to the Zionist entity by any means necessary and so on. Walter, you've, you've spent a lot of time in the Ivy League and on other campuses with students, with other faculty and administrators. How do you think about all of this activity? That's a very complicated set of questions. Um, and, you know, depending on your starting points, you can you can arrive at a lot of different levels of analysis about it. You know, at one level, uh, if you're an absolutist defender of free speech, which is more or less where my heart is, uh, it's very hard to criticize even hate speech uh, on the basis of you should, you know, I don't think we should have laws in this country prohibiting people from voicing even very ugly and nasty Opinions. I used to actually, when the ACLU, back when it was a uh, believer in free speech, when the ACLU actually uh, went to court to defend the right of Nazis, to American Nazis, to march through a town in Illinois that had even Holocaust survivors in it, uh, I thought, leap from the standpoint of, of of American values, that was the right stand to take. So at one level, you're not you're not going to hear me saying, okay, you can't have people on a university campus or students or faculty expressing even something as in my view as as unspeakable as um, support for Hamas. But on the other hand, universe and, and and also I would say if I were an administrator of a university, if I were preg and and we should all be glad that isn't happening. I'm a terrible administrator and would be a worse university president, I would make it my business to see that the institution never took a stand on any public issue. A university should be a platform, not an agent. And uh, each student and professor is responsible for their own opinions, their own views, their own actions. And, and because once a university sort of says, well, I'm against X, then Y comes up. And if you take a position on it, uh, you you may get into a lot of criticism. But at the same time, if you don't take a position on it, people say, well, this means you don't care about Y because you just made that statement about X. So it politicizes everything. And I think the, the goal of a university as an institution should be to be not political. So, you know, there, that's that would be kind of one set. Uh, and once these universities have started going down that slippery slope, now they're just all rest, you know, rolling around and wrestling in the mud, but they chose to jump into the mud pit. And, you know, I think that if I were a trustee, I would try to get my president to commit to a new course of action. 
On the other hand, I don't think it's possible to deny that there's an anti-Jewish climate at many of our more elite institutions and even, and, you know, and, and basically generically in academia. Uh, there are a lot of uh, reasons for this. One of them actually is that Jews are have dropped dramatically in the student body, and I think more slowly, but are dropping uh, as in their percentage of representation in university faculties. That sort of post-World War II, when they stopped discriminating, actively discriminating against Jews in both admissions and hiring, the number of very talented very hardworking Jewish students in many of these universities shot up. But in the name of diversity, uh, also with changing demography, uh, we are seeing now a much lower percentage of Jewish students admitted to these universities. And so this is this dynamic is is changing things. Uh, there is, I think, something of a often a guerrilla war going on between the sort of administrative apparatchiks of the DEI industry, the diversity, equity, inclusion industry, who would, many of them, I think, would actively like to accelerate the disappearance or the diminishment of the Jewish presence at their universities. In some cases, not so much as out of an animus against Jews, but simply a, a greater love for other groups. And I think today it's it's safe to say that for the first time since World War II, it's harder. Jews have to outperform some students of other ethnic backgrounds or religious backgrounds to get a place in the Ivy League. They're not the only ones of this kind. Um, there's no one in worse shape in the United States today than a young Korean-American woman who plays the violin well and scores 800 on her SATs, on all of her SATs, because no Ivy League school will touch her. It's terrible. So there is, there actually is in the American academic community a kind of um, de facto prejudice against people from certain ethnic and religious backgrounds. Uh, it's often, again, it's often less in terms of the professoriate or even the students than among these sort of administrators who need a raison d'etre. I would, and I think also, by the way, I think in admissions is where we see the greatest. The two places where the university is failing the most seriously are in admissions and in hiring. Uh, in admissions and hiring, both. What I think these universities fail to understand is that the capacity for good citizenship is actually an important qualification either for admission to an elite university or for a faculty position at any university. You know, so that the kids who are, who are going to the Ivy Leagues are being groomed to be leaders in the future of society. And the same, by the way, in law schools and, and other professional schools. Those students, among the, among the qualities that they ought to be evaluated on in a competitive admissions process is their commitment to the values of civility and tolerance that are fundamental to the survival of the Amer of American society. And we have, I think, you know, if you look at the behavior of uh, some of the students who are signing these crazy petitions, if you're looking at the way some faculty members are behaving and the sort of lack of caution, uh, lack of uh, common sense, lack of dignity, and even lack of humanity that one sees in some of these statements, it's clear that the wrong people have gotten into these jobs. And you cannot, consonant with academic freedom, try to fire somebody because they've said something that you don't like. 
at least once they're tenured. Uh, but I think you very much can and should make sure that you are hiring and admitting people who are capable and willing to be leaders of America, not leaders of some fantasy succession ideology state or something like that. There aren't any great answers. And by and large, and I speak from very deep personal experience, we intellectuals tend to be rather eccentric. We are sometimes quite hot-headed. We very, very often lack common sense. Somebody with a lot of common sense might be making $400,000 a year as a car dealer rather than $65,000 a year as an associate professor uh, carrying $150,000 of student loans. So there are occupational hazards in this profession. Sane administrators, uh, visionary presidents, and thoughtful trustees should bear that in mind when making these crucial hiring decisions. All right, that does it for the news this week. Let's have the big conversation. So, Walter, with a massive IDF force stage that the Gaza border awaiting orders to begin an expected ground assault and Hezbollah probing Israel in the north. President Biden delivered an unusually powerful speech on Tuesday night, declaring his full-throated commitment to Israel's security. With at least 22 Americans already confirmed as killed in the Hamas attack and an estimated 17 thought to be held as hostages in Gaza, Biden affirmed Israel's duty to respond to the attack promised material support to the IDF and issued a warning seemingly aimed at deterring Hezbollah from entering the war. And yet, despite Biden's steadfastness, his assurances in the speech, which were well received by many Israelis, seemed to work at cross purposes with his administration's strategy in the region, which has included constraining Israel from carrying out attacks and Hamas and Hezbollah out of concern that this would upset the U.S.-Iranian detente that has been a centerpiece of both the Obama and Biden administrations. The savagery of the Hamas attack may have changed that calculation, but it seems we don't really know the limits of U.S. support for Israel at this time or how it'll interact with Israeli operational imperatives until after the real fighting starts. How do you think about this? Well, I do think we have to begin from the idea that um, this is in many ways the third term of Barack Obama. Uh, there are obviously differences between Presidents Biden and Obama, but if you look at who is in these top positions, uh, what are the what are some of the basic calculations that the strategic calculations that they make? There's a lot of continuity, and uh, for President Obama, a top priority was the top priority was to avoid U.S. participation in yet another Middle East war coming off Iraq, Afghanistan, and the deep divisions that had opened up in American society. Uh, and that, I think, has also been the primary goal of the Biden administration. Now, I am not going to say that that's a bad goal to have. Uh, I also think that keeping the United States out of war is a really good thing for a president of the United States to try to accomplish. And uh, that really should not be controversial. The question is, how do you, do you have a viable strategy to do that? And how do you recognize and deal with the real threats to peace, the real threats that might in fact drag you into war, much against your will? 
I think that the, these last three democratic administrations have seen the possibility that the Iranian nuclear drive for nuclear weapons would trigger a war between Israel and Iran that ultimately the United States would not be able to stay out of was the kind of guiding star of their Middle East policy. And Obama tried to do this basically by moving toward detente with Iran. I'm afraid there are a lot of people uh, sort of remind me a little bit of Grimo Wormtongue in uh, in the Tolkien uh, books, sort of Grima going to King Theoden and saying, Rohan is in decline. There's really nothing you can do. It's all the tide of history is turned against you. But fortunately, Saruman, who sometimes might look a little dangerous, actually, his intentions are good. Uh, you know, he's the moderate in Sauron's coalition. You can work with him. So that kind of simultaneous message of reinforcing defeatism and declinism on the one hand, but then also creating an entirely false picture that there is someone out there with whom you could make a deal. Uh, that's what you've been hearing from kind of the Iran caucus. And it's a big caucus. Uh, it has also been, uh, you know, we we look at countries like Qatar that have made tremendous investments in things like U.S. think tanks and various influence operations. And there, too, the idea is, well, you can, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood, of which Hamas is a member in good standing, this is a real partner for for the United States in the Middle East and also Iran. So this idea that somehow... The safe glide path for an America that wants to get out of the Middle East is to somehow reach an accommodation with Iran and Hamas, etc. That's the picture. That's the bill of goods, I think, that many in these democratic administrations have bought into. And it looks very statesmanlike uh, and it looks very prudent. And, you know, unfortunately, I think the, the problem is that Iran and Hamas are not moderate regimes waiting to emerge once the United States stops intimidating them and being hostile toward them. They do, in fact, have strong ideological beliefs and strong views of their interests that lead them to believe that working literally for the destruction of Israel and literally to destroy American influence in the Middle East is an absolute priority for them. Uh, and so whatever concessions you make, they will turn them against you. They are not interested in making friends. In my Wall Street Journal column earlier this week, I, I quoted uh, Franklin Roosevelt in one of his fireside chats, where he says, no man can tame a tiger into a kitten by stroking it. And this is so stroking Iran, stroking Hamas, you know, not so much stroke. Hezbollah is a little harder to stroke. It's a little bit more like stroking a porcupine, but still not provoking the porcupine uh, is uh, has been their approach. And the hope has been to get some kind of accommodation that would allow the U.S. to reduce its presence in and attention to the Middle East while ensuring that the basic American security interests in that part of the world would be respected. It's not in itself an evil thing to want to do, but it's profoundly mistaken in, in its reading of the, the realities on the ground. And this is, uh, it's, it's deeply entrenched. Uh, I've talked to a number of people who've been active in this 
policy. Um, the belief that the moderates in Iran were just a few American concessions away from taking power, the belief that even the hardliners would take rational calculations based on certain American steps, all of these things are, are very much, they're just hardwired into a lot of the folks in the Democratic foreign policy establishment. You you wrote in your journal column from today that, you know, if the U.S. and Israel are effectively deterred from inflicting a price on Iran for its role in Hamas's attack due to fears of retaliation, then Iran will have achieved its hegemonic position in the Middle East, even without the nuclear weapons that it's probably going to have soon anyway. And your big fear, as you put it, is that the Biden administration has maybe already determined to accept that. So is this already a kind of fait accompli? This is this is what we're going to find out, I think, because, you know, lawyers can quibble and they're going to quibble about, you know, how much was Iran involved in the specific planning of, of the Hamas attack. And we've seen reports in both The Wall Street Journal and The Washington Post that kind of point to a high degree of Iranian involvement. And we also hear, we also see this morning, I think, in the in the New York Times, a story that says that Iranian officials were uh, surprised uh, when the attack started. So, you know, there's definitely a certain kind of a cloud, you know, was there an Iranian finger on the trigger? You know, did Iran, as the Wall Street Journal uh, story suggested, give a go ahead for the attack? Hard to say. Did the people who expressed surprise know they might be being bugged? The Iranians have learned a great deal about our ability to listen in on their conversations. And we've just seen that Hamas disingenuously fooled the Israelis, Mossad, for a year by staged conversations and things like that. So we really... You know, when all Cretans are liars, you you just can't figure out what any of the what, what's true from what any of the Cretans says to you. So you have to step back. And I'm afraid that what the administration is doing is using this irreducible cloud of uncertainty as a fig leaf. You know, so they say, oh, well, it's not proof. So we don't really have any standing to say anything, you know, to make any uh, comments and so on. But I think this is to miss the fundamental point. That for a very long time now, Iran has been deliberately funding, building up in defiance of UN resolutions, all norms of international behavior, a, a regional network of proxies, terrorists. Uh, it is armed, equipped, and trained them absolutely with an eye toward inflicting the maximum uh, punishment on I Israel and the maximum damage to the position of the United States and to the lives of American citizens. Unfortunately, the the kind of States, you know, the, the strategic passivity, the statesmanlike approach of a John Kerry or a Secretary Blinken um, to these matters is indistinguishable from appeasement, at least from the Iranian point of view. And so they have simply continued to advance. Uh, a lot of people in the Democratic administration point out correctly that Iran you know, came closer to uh, nuclear weapons during the Trump administration in spite of Trump's policy of pressure. What they really don't like saying is that on every day a Democrat has been in the White House since the inauguration of Barack Obama, 
uh, Iran has advanced its regional goals one way or another with very lame and limited and ineffective pushback by the United States. So to try to look at this situation as if none of that history were true or important um, is, I think, to miss the fundamental dynamics. So right now, I think the focus is correctly on trying to deal with the problem of Hamas in Gaza at this, at this actual moment. It would not be in Israel's military interests to open new fronts or anything of that kind right now. But success in Gaza can't be seen as the end of the response to these attacks. And just again, think about what's been happening in Lebanon where Hezbollah has steadily built up 100,000 or more missiles, entrenched itself, destroyed Lebanese government and society, built a criminal empire of with global implications, uh, involved with terrorists in many places. Clearly, I think some of the tactics that we saw Hamas use were taught them by Hezbollah people. So is our policy and is Israel's policy to sit passively while the noose is knotted and thrown around Israel's neck. Uh, And at every moment to say, well, to struggle could cause problems. I mean, I, you know, I have a noose. Now I have a noose around me. I have to sit still. Uh, And I think if you look at statements from the Iranian leadership and from Hezbollah leadership, they think they're winning. They feel they're on a roll. And you can see that Arab countries are now beginning to hedge their bets by um, beginning to open contacts with Iran. So um, the Iranian-Russian relationship is stronger than ever. Uh, China, thanks again in part to Biden's deliberate looking the other way on sanctions violations and so on, intentional, has amassed significant amounts of money and has also assured itself of deeper Chinese backing. So we must look at this from a regional and a global viewpoint. Again, I think the the Biden strategy, as far as I'm able to, to suss it out, is that China is, oddly, in some ways, it's, it's closer to Elbridge Colby's uh, strategy in that China is the one thing that we should really worry about. Now, they've been dragged into Ukraine very unwillingly, but their original goal was to park Russia, park Iran, and focus like a laser on China. And they hoped that from that position of strength, they could get China to engage with them on things like climate change and other issues of interest to them, while at the same time limiting China's sort of potential to disrupt the international system. Uh, that position is in ruins, is is literally in flames in Ukraine and in Gaza and Israel today. They still seem to be trying to salvage as much of it as possible rather than thinking about a different thing of like, okay, we don't like it, but we face a global challenge from this axis of revisionists, each of them quite different with different goals And certainly their partnership is no deeper or more sincere than a bond among thieves has ever been. And and from that perspective, in some ways, Iran is the greatest target of opportunity. It's both the weakest of the three challengers and most vulnerable. And it is the one that has been the most ambitious, the most out front, the most provocative, and shown the least regard, save Putin's attacks on Ukraine, for any principle of international order 
And so there would be, if, if you were looking for how do I really teach the axis of revisionists a lesson, Iran might well be your best place to begin. And where you have countries like Israel and Saudi and others in the region who are at least as concerned as you are about Iran, you could begin to orchestrate a real counter policy. But I don't yet see a sign that the Biden administration is willing to go down this road. Okay, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end with a tip of the week. Walter, you wrote the book literally on U.S.-Israel relations and what they mean for the future of the Jewish people. And I know a lot of research went into that book. So for this week, give our listeners the book you read in the course of your research for the Ark of a Covenant that you loved the most or that stood out to you the most or that you'd recommend to all of them, fiction or nonfiction. I was going to say that really pulls out the English major in me uh, because Part of what I tried to do in the book was to understand the rise of the sort of liberal philo-Semitism in the Anglo-American world, which is really an extraordinary phenomenon and uh, has deep roots. You can already see some of it in as, as early as the 18th century. And what that led me to was to read some novels by prominent English authors about the Jews, or where Jews played some kind of a role. And that led me to Ivanhoe, Sir Walter Scott's novel about medieval England, where but really for the first time, you see Jewish in, in English literature, you really see Jewish characters portrayed sympathetically and with understanding. Then I, you know, I went from there and I read Benjamin Disraeli and, and uh, wrote kind of a proto-Zionist novel and Daniel Deronda by uh, uh, the author of Middlemarch, um, you know, a really classic British author, is about a young, a young man who has been brought up in an English family to think of himself as an Englishman, discovers he's actually of Jewish heritage and becomes a, a, a Zionist. Uh, and this is all decades before Herzl. And it's 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 fascinating. Then then I think uh, Anthony Trollope's novel, uh, The Way We Live Now, which is about a mysterious Jewish financier who, uh, be, you know, more Bernie Madoff, may I say, than uh, than uh, some than the more sympathetic characters establishes himself in London. But what's interesting is instead of being a sort of rant against the rootless cosmopolite and the corrupter, Trollope's focus is on how eager so many prominent Brits of noble extraction, so on, are to, you know, to join in and try to make as much money as possible. And so it really, rather than being an anti-Semitic rant, it's a very penetrating gaze at what the world of high finance is doing to British morals and manners. It's a lovely book. So the, it, it, it led me to fiction. Now, some of my readers will probably say, yeah, right, we expect it would, given your whole book is fictional. <laughs> but that was a delight to come across those books. All right. That does it for this week. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time. Thank you.
mighty and holy, I shall not be moved. Sanctified and holy, I shall not be moved just like a tree planted by the water. I shall not be moved. Why? I shall not be moved. I shall not. I shall not be moved just like a tree.